Good evening, everyone. So much like this morning, if you've been with us uh, the past two weeks, you should have a pretty good idea of where we're going to be, and you can open your Bibles up to Numbers 24 as we get to the last chapter that deals with our person of interest, Balaam. Last week, in Numbers 23, we looked at the first two discourses of Balaam regarding Israel. Uh, The first discourse was a blessing. And to sum it up, Israel is unique among the nations. They have been set apart among the nations. And Israel will be numerous. And the blessing is so good that Balaam decides, I'd like to partake in that blessing myself if possible. Now, if you remember, Balaam was not hired to bless Israel. Balaam was hired to curse Israel. So Balaam's employer, Balak, the king of Moab, was hoping for a different answer. So what Balak, the king of Moab, did was he increased the bribe, so to speak. In the, in the first offering for the first discourse, it was seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams, this idea of, at least in pagan thought, a complete offering. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, didn't do what Balak wanted. So Yahweh, or so ba- Balak, coming from a pagan viewpoint, thinking that Yahweh is just the local God of Israel, decides to up the ante. He decides to bribe God, to try and get God to change his tune. And in the second discourse, the Lord takes the opportunity to expand his blessing on Israel. And he makes something very, very clear to Balak. He speaks directly to Balak. And he makes it clear that he's not some pagan god. He's not some local deity. He is the God of Israel, and he doesn't take bribes. He doesn't change his mind. If he he has spoken, and he will do it. Israel will be blessed, and even Balaam, our magician of interest, cannot change that. Balaam has no tricks he can use to change the fact that Israel is blessed. The Lord is their king. The Lord is strong for Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, and Israel itself rises like a lioness, looking for prey to devour. And after that second discourse, uh, Balak kindly tells Balaam to stop talking because he doesn't want to hear any more blessing for Israel. And Balak, in a last-ditch effort, has decided to try one more time for a curse, and that is where we left off in Numbers 23. At the end of Numbers 23, Balak takes Balaam farther away from the Israelites into the wilderness where he won't be able to see them, hoping that if he puts enough distance between him and Yahweh, Yahweh's power is going to go down because Balak is still operating from a pagan mindset. But what we're going to see in Numbers 24 is that God is not just the God of Israel. God is the God of all nations. God is the God of all creation. And his plan will stand. So Balaam stands on Mount Peor. He's in the wilderness. And he begins his third discourse for Israel. And this is where we pick up in Numbers 24. 
We're going to read verses 1 to 4 first. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. You'll notice there's a difference here in this third discourse from the first two. In the first two, Balaam leaves Balak and his elders at their sacrifices, and he goes off to a lone place and meets with God, and God puts a word in his mouth, a message in his mouth, and Balaam then comes back to Balak. Balaam doesn't do that this time. And I think that's because in the middle of the second discourse, Balaam came to a realization. If you turn back with me to Numbers 23, just one chapter back, and we read verses 20 and verses 23, we read these. Behold, I, that's Balaam speaking, have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. Verse 23, for there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. I think Balaam has come to the realization that he can't change God's mind either. Remember, Balaam isn't the hero in this story. Balaam is the tool in this story. Balaam wants to get paid. Balaam wants to please his employer, so he gets that house full of gold and silver. And Balaam's been listening to his own messages. And I think Balaam's come to the realization that he's just not getting paid. Uh, it's, it's not going to come out curses. So instead... I think Balaam here just leans into the blessing. He kind of just throws up his hands and realizes the Lord is happy to bless Israel. So there's no need to go ask him what's going to happen. There's no need to go seek out omens. There's no need to go practice enchantments. There's no need to go practice sorcery. None of these magical means that he may have at his ability. The answer is pretty clear. The Lord is going to bless Israel. So instead of magic, he simply faces the wilderness before him. He lifts his eyes and sees Israel camping tribe by tribe, which is a miracle in and of itself because they're not in view. And then the Spirit of God comes on him. And this is one of the most unique circumstances in all of the Old Testament. This is, as far as I know, the only time the Holy Spirit comes on a non-Jew in the Old Testament. The way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament is a little bit different than the way it works in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he could come and go. Turn with me to Numbers 11. We're going to go a few chapters back in the book of Numbers to give you an example of this practice of the Holy Spirit, of showing up, indwelling some people, and then leaving. Numbers 11, verses 25 and 26. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the spirit who was upon him, him being Moses, and placed him upon the seventy elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad. 
And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but, not had, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So here we see God takes of the Spirit on Moses and spreads it out to the elders of Israel. They gain it. And the thought then is that some of them lose it, except for these two, who continue to prophesy. Turn also to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, King Saul is probably the most interesting person involved with the Holy Spirit because he gains it and then he loses it and then certain times he gains it again and then he loses it again. 1 Samuel 19, and we're going to read verses 18 to 23. So this is one of the episodes where Saul is looking to put David to death and he is hunting him down. Verse 18, Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Seku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. He proceeded there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth in Ramah. In the Old Testament, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit is allowed to come, and then he is allowed to leave. And what we see here in Numbers 24 is that this is the only time the Holy Spirit comes on somebody who's a non-Jew in the Old Testament. Balaam is unique in that. But again, Balaam is being used as a tool of the Lord to give his message. And frankly, uh, God can use whomever he pleases because nobody is qualified to be used by him. So in his grace, he can just decide to use whoever he wants. So this pagan magician experiences the Holy Spirit upon him and his discourse begins with a rather long introduction in verses 3 And four, he is now the man whose eye is opened. He is now him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty. And at the end, he mentions falling down. Falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. And what this reminds me of is if you read in Ezekiel 1 or Revelation 1, whether it's Ezekiel or it's John, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, when they see the vision of God in his glory, At the end of that vision, they fall down like dead men, it describes in the Bible. So it would not be surprising if, as part of this Spirit of God coming upon him, Balaam Balaam is totally overwhelmed. And when he falls down, or as the King James puts it, as he falls into a trance, he literally falls. But Balaam is making it clear to his audience, being Balak and his elders and also us reading it now, whose message he has. This is the message of God, the Almighty. This is the message of El Shaddai. Verses 5 to 9. 
How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his enemies and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. So the actual blessing begins with a blessing on Israel's dwellings. They are like valleys between mountains. And all of verse 6 uses a ton of different ways to describe Israel. Valley between mountains, gardens, plants, trees by the water. Their seed will be by many waters and their water will overflow for them. The language here of valleys and gardens and plants and trees and overflowing water would conjure up to an audience, including Balak, paradise. For us, the Garden of Eden. This place where there is abundant water, there are abundant plants, there is abundant produce. This phrase, seed will be by many waters, uh, can kind of mean one of two things, and it probably actually means both. One, it could just be an ancient way of saying that they will be populous. They will have an ever-growing population. They will be numerous. The other is that they're going to be blessed with the best of the land. Remember, at this time, there is no indoor plumbing. Israel is largely an agricultural society. So to have overflowing water is extremely important to be alive as a people. In fact, it is the foundation for cities. It is the foundation for civilizations is having a clean water source. So the fact that Israel is going to have abundant waters means that they are going to be in a great place. Most likely, the blessing is twofold. One, they're going to be in a great place. And two, because of that, they're going to be numerous. Israel will increase in population and reside by many waters, which is the ideal situation for any nation anywhere in the world at this time. That would be where you want your civilization to start is in a place where your buckets are overflowing with water. There's so much of it. Israel will be exalted, their king higher than Agag. Now, Agag may sound familiar. Agag is a title, we believe, for the leader of the Amalekites, in the same way that Pharaoh is a title for the leader of the Egyptians. So that would be their way of saying king. The Amalekites were the very first nation to fight Israel after the Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, we're going to read verse 8, and then we're going to read verses 13 to 16. So Exodus 17, verse 8. So this is basically as close to entering the wilderness to get to the promised land as you can get after they've been freed from Egypt. 
Verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. This is very not okay with the Lord because we read in verses 13 to 16. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So part of this blessing is that you are going to be exalted above your very first enemy coming out of the wilderness. And we actually see this. If you remember, King Saul was given very specific directions concerning Agag and the Amalekites. He was to put everyone to death. And King Saul kept King Agag, or Agag the king, alive. And because of that, Samuel hears the cattle making noise. He sees the king alive, and he pronounces that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Israel, is going to be pulled away from Saul and given to another because of Saul's disobedience. But at the time of Saul, we see this fulfilled. And then at the time of David, we see it fulfilled, that Israel is exalted above Agag. And then Balaam moves from Israel to Israel's God in verses 8 and 9. The first half of verse 8 is the same as Numbers 23, 22. It's a repetition of who God is and what he has done. The Lord brings them out of Egypt. The Lord is strong for them like the ox. But then he adds on to it. Much like how discourse number two was an expansion of discourse number one, discourse number three is an expansion of discourse number two. The Lord will also devour, crush, and shatter the nations against him. And he asks a rhetorical question. The Lord is like a lion. Who would be stupid enough to wake him up? Who would be dumb enough to bug a lion? Because when the lion wakes up, He is going to devour and crush and shatter. And then this discourse ends with the promise of God to Abraham regarding the blessing. If you turn with me to Genesis 12, this is the first time Abraham is given this promise from God. Genesis 12, verse 3. Well, I'll read verse 1, but we'll, we'll end in verse 3. So Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the conclusion of the third discourse. Blessed is everyone who blesses you and curses everyone who curses you. It is highly unlikely that Balaam knew about this blessing before the Spirit of God came upon him. But these discourses regarding Israel end with the thing that started God's chosen people. God speaking to Abraham and giving him these promises and telling him to go. And that leads to the people getting into Egypt 
and then the people getting out of Egypt, and then the people in the plains of Moab about to enter into the promised land. The final discourse of Balaam regarding Israel ends with the very first promise that was given to Israel in Abraham. And then Balaam's discourse ends. And now it's Balak's turn. And Balak is very unhappy. Verses 10 to 14. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom he had sent to me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could, do, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. So Balak, this time he just bursts out in anger. He is furious with Balaam at this point. I hired you to curse, and not only have you not done that, you have instead blessed three times. Because of this, you'll get nothing from me, so leave. And then he kind of adds this jab in there. And this is actually where Balak uses the proper name of God in the text. If you notice, Balak... In, the, in verse 11, I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, but behold, Yahweh has held you back from honor. So he adds this jab, that this God that you've been speaking for is the one that has taken all of this wealth I would have given you away from you. It's his fault. You kept wanting to say what he wanted to say, and now because you've done that, you get nothing. Balak is very angry with Balaam, but Balaam just reminds him of the deal. Balaam's very clear, like from the get-go, I told you what I was going to say. I'm going to say whatever the Lord puts into my mouth. You knew that from the start. But Balaam, being such a nice guy, uh, gives Balak a buy three, get one free deal, so to speak, where before he leaves, before he goes his way and Balaam and Balak part, He is going to tell him what the Israelites are going to do to him, his people, and the nations around him. And so now this is not a discourse on Israel. This is a discourse on the nations. And what follows in the rest of the chapter are four rapid-fire discourses on Moab and on Moab's neighbors. So verses 15 to 19. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. And almost exactly the same opening. Again, making clear to Balak, this isn't my message. What I am giving you is from Yahweh. Verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion, and will destroy the remnant from the city. The first of these four discourses begins with a prophecy of a king. That's what the imagery of a star and a scepter point to. It points to a king. And this king from Israel will crush through the head of Moab and the sons of Sheth. We don't really know who the sons of Sheth were. Uh, Some believe them to be a semi-nomadic Arabian tribe. Some believe you should translate sons of Sheth as sons of tumult, and that is just kind of a phrase for riotous, unruly people. Either way, Moab will be defeated by Israel, which is obviously not what Balak wants to hear, given that he wants Israel to be cursed. But now, in an act of irony, the guy that Balak hired to curse his enemies, has blessed his enemies, and then cursed him in return. Edom and Seir shall be a possession while Israel shall perform valiantly. That's what verse 18 tells us. This word valiantly means that they are going to perform with strength and efficiency. This one from Jacob shall have dominion. He will be ruler and will destroy the remnant of the city. We don't really know what the remnant of the city refers to, but most likely because Balaam has just been passing through Moabite cities and he has just said that this king is going to crush through the forehead of Moab, he's referencing Moabite cities. The first discourse is against Moab and is against Edom. And if you were to look at a map of Israel, Moab and Edom are their southeastern neighbors. Israel's king will crush them and capture them. Israel will perform valiantly. Now, the king talked about here is King David. That's the person who fulfills this in the Old Testament. In the overarching theme of Scripture, however, the king that fulfills this is Jesus, who is the star and the scepter from the house of Jacob. So that's the first discourse. The second discourse is incredibly short. Verse 20. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his his end shall be destruction. The second discourse is against Amalek and the Amalekites. They were Israel's first enemies. They were the ones placed under a curse by God. We know that at the time of King Saul, they lived south of Israel. They were the first nation Israel met coming out of Egypt as Egypt was led by their God. And for the Amalekites, their end shall be destruction. Then verse 21 and 22. And he looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Asher keep you captive? The third discourse is against the Kenite. This is another one of those people groups that we don't have a a really good idea of who they were. 
they are believed to have been a nomadic tribe known for their smithing. This word Kenite literally means smith. So this would be a, a traveling tribe of metalsmiths. And most likely where they were nomadic was southeast of Israel. We know from other records outside of Scripture that the Kenites lived both with the Midianites and with the Amalekites at different points, both being nations that Israel was going to defeat. By the time of King David, 1000 BC, references to them kind of stop. They kind of fall out of history, so to speak. And it's believed that they either got absorbed by the surrounding nations or that people group was wiped out. They either died out, got wiped out, or were absorbed by their neighbors. Now, evidently, they dwelt in high, hard-to-reach places. Those places would be safe. Those places would be incredibly hard to try to invade and capture. And no doubt, Cain, their head city, resided in such a place. But it does not save them from Ashur. Ashur is a very old name for Assyria. And if you remember anything about Jewish history, Assyria kind of becomes the big bully from the north to not just Israel and Judah, but to the entire region for quite a while as they're the empire on top. And we're told that they were consumed by Ashur. This word consumed is not the idea of a lion eating a meal. It is the idea of a fire burning a log. The, the, the link here with this consumed is one of fire, which probably gives us a hint as to what Assyria did to their cities when Assyria showed up and destroyed them. And then we get to verses 23 and 24, the final of these four rapid-fire discourses. Then he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim, and they shall afflict Ashur and will afflict Eber. So they will also come to destruction. The fourth discourse begins with a question. Who can live except God has ordained it? In the context of what Balaam's been talking about, Balaam has been speaking of the destruction of nations. And what this question is really getting at here is that the only reason these nations exist at all is because the Lord allows it. The only reason any nation exists at all is because the Lord allows it. The only reason America is still a nation is because the Lord allows it. And the second God decides he's not going to allow it anymore is the second that nation no longer exists. It is the Lord who gives them their existence and it is the Lord who will take away their existence. Their high places, their kings, their nations, all like that, if the Lord decides it. And then he speaks of Kittim. We know what Kittim is. Uh, Kittim is the island Cyprus. It's in the Mediterranean. It's off the coast of Israel and its neighbors who would be on that part of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's believed that the Philistines were descended from Kittim. Uh, the word Philistine literally means sea people. So these people who came from an island, crossed the sea, they came from the Mediterranean Sea and settled along the coast. So it, it would make sense that these people would come from Kittim. They would have been southwest of Israel. 
And there's one very well-known Philistine who was slain by a king of Judah, although he was not king at the time. That very well-known Philistine is Goliath. And the king who would be that slain him was David. And we're told here that Kittim will afflict both Ashur, which is Assyria, and Eber. And Eber is Israel. Uh, The word Hebrew is traced back in the genealogies in Genesis to the man named Eber. That's the root word for Hebrew. That's where it comes from. And when you read about what the Philistines did to the Israelites, affliction is a very nice way of putting it. Uh, They were at war just about any time they could be at war. But Kittim will eventually come to destruction. The Philistines will eventually come to destruction. Even the island of Cyprus will eventually come to destruction. And then Balaam finishes his discourses on Balak's nation and on Balak's neighbors. See, all the way back when we started in Numbers 22, Balak had heard of what Israel had done to some of his neighbors. That, that fear that the Israelites are going to come and do the same thing to him is what started this whole section of Numbers where Balak hires Balaam because he's a powerful magician and those whom Balaam blesses are blessed and those who Balaam curses are cursed. So Balak is buying magical protection from the Israelites because he's terrified of them because of what he has done or what Israel has done to his neighbors. And now Balak knows what is going to happen from the mouth of the very same man that he hired, that an Israelite king is going to arise and that Israelite king is going to destroy Moab. These last four discourses, these rapid-fire discourses, largely focus on other nations. The first three all focus on Israel. Israel is kind of in the peripheral here. Uh, We look at Moab, we look at Edom, we look at Amalek, we look at Philistia. And while the blessing isn't really on Israel here, the curse is definitely on Israel's neighbors. So it's kind of an indirect blessing for Israel. It's not so much that Israel is going to win, 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 although that is mentioned a little bit. It's also that Israel's neighbors are going to lose. Israel's neighbors are going to be destroyed while Israel has a king, while Israel thrives. It is an indirect blessing. Israel will do valiantly, and everyone else is going to be destroyed. And then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. And that's the last we hear of Balaam until the book of Joshua, where Joshua and his men kill Balaam alongside the Midianites. That's how Balaam ends. This pagan magician speaks the message the Lord put in his mouth to his employer, and he can't curse Israel. He has to bless Israel. And Numbers here is crafting the narrative. When we started in Numbers 22, Numbers is kind of on a downward spiral. Everybody's complaining, so they're being killed. The leaders are complaining, they're being killed. The people reject the promised land, so they're forced to wander in the wilderness till they all die. Moses himself openly disobeys God in front of the congregation, and now he can't go see the promised land. Downward and downward and downward and downward, and then we get to Numbers 22, and all of a sudden Numbers is starting to go up. And it uses a pagan magician, Balaam, 
who was the tool of the Lord to give the message. And he's been used, and then he goes home. But Balaam and Balak both learned something of great importance, something they didn't know beforehand. Yahweh, this God of Israel, is not just the God of Israel. God is the God of all nations, and his plan will stand. Israel will be blessed, just as was promised 400 years ago to Abram. And their blessing extends to every facet of nationhood. Their food is blessed. Their population is blessed. Their military is blessed. Their leadership is blessed. Their God is blessed. And the surrounding nations that are going to be in their way when they enter into the promised land are cursed. Moab, Edom, Amalek, Philistia, all will be destroyed as Israel will be blessed. And so Numbers makes something clear by the end of Numbers 24. The Lord is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of the whole world. He is the one who blesses. He is the one who curses. He is the one who uses even complaining, disobedient people. Praise God, because that includes us. He is the one who always fulfills his promises. He is the one who always accomplishes what he has said. And his plan for the world will stand. And he will bless his people as their king. That is what we learn from Balaam. Not because Balaam wanted to say it, but because the Lord was using Balaam to say it. And this is still true to this day. God is the God of all the nations. And for all of the craziness that we see going on in the world, a great example right now is Ukraine and Russia. But there are countless examples around the world of disasters and wars and famines and horrible, horrible evil. God is still the God of all the nations. God is still the one who appoints the nations to exist, who appoints to their destruction, and we can trust in that. And we can have encouragement and hope and strength because once we become a Christian, our person is no longer a citizen of earth whatsoever. We are now a citizen of heaven. We are now of God's household. And we become part of the ones who are blessed. And our nation, so to speak, of believers that spans across the entire globe is blessed. And if God is the one who blesses, he will bless. That's what Balaam learned. That's what Balak learned. And that's what Numbers 24 is teaching. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for this very interesting person, Balaam. And I thank you that in it we see that your hands are not tied based on the people you have available. That you use whomever you see fit to be your messenger, to be your tool. And I thank you that throughout this we see two people who do not know you come to a single understanding that you are not just some local God of the Israelites tied down to a people or tied down to a nation, but you are the God of all the world. You are the God of all the nations. 
And it is you who bless, it is you who curse, it is you who uplift, and it is you who destroy. And I thank you that we can trust you as you do that throughout the world. And I thank you that we are now citizens of a nation that goes beyond borders. We are now members of your household. We are now part of the nation of the blessed. And I pray that that brings us comfort and encouragement and hope going forward. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.